Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. We ended last episode with Sabin and his new friends, Cyan and Gao, headed north to Narsh. And we're going to pick up now with a man who needs to perhaps be in disguise. Hiding his true self. Perhaps using a false name. Uh, (laughs) so this is the second of our three branching storylines when our party was separated after meeting at the returner's hideout if you'll recall Locke has been sent to south figaro which is now under control of the empire he's trying to learn a bit more information about what their next move is so that he can report back to the group and we pick up and again i love this little storytelling mechanism i i love it when a, a point is made about you know this is the goal and then we skip to after the goal has already been accomplished we pick up with Locke, and he's achieved the goal of finding the information out he knows that the empire intends to attack narsh and he's trying to figure out now how to escape from south figaro because it's crawling with empire soldiers so he's just looking for his way out at this point this part actually reminds me a lot of when our heroes from Final Fantasy II go back to the town of Finn and it's crawling with uh, Imperial soldiers. It's, you know, it's a very similar idea. You, cannot, you can't just go straight from A to B because if you do, you'll get your butt kicked and, and that's not what this particular scenario is about. Uh, I liked how you mentioned an episode or two ago that you know, if we were remaking this, we might do it in a film noir style. It, it has... It definitely has that uh, spy versus spy kind of thing going on, except we've only got the one spy and he's the best, so we're in pretty good shape. Yeah, I'd love to have uh, like an internal monologue running for Locke as he's sneaking around, trying to figure out a way out of here, doing some of the things he's going to have to do, stealing some clothes, stealing some important items, uh, sneaking around pretending to be other people. There's just a, a great opportunity here for like a, a almost a one-man play for this character. Uh, so there are a few things you can do here in South Figaro. Basically, what you've got to do, though, as you wander around, is you've got to get into a fight with a merchant and steal his clothes. You, you do that in combat, and then it, it shows the uh, the merchant character, like as this shriveled dude in his boxer shorts uh, looks very cold. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. We've talked a couple of times, actually a lot in Mystic Quest, about how it's always great when the things you do in battle 
have some kind of story resonance as well. And uh, some of the games, I think, do a better job of that than others. And this is, a, I think, a great example of allowing the steel mechanic, not just to be a way you can get extra items or maybe pick up some cool, weird, valuable weapons or something like that. Here, playing the storyline role, and it, you know, it says something like, you stole a potion and his clothes, too. And <laughs> good stuff. So once you've got the merchant's clothes, you're in disguise, and you can use that to, to sneak through the old man's house. Then you can fight an imperial soldier in green, who I suppose is meant to be like an officer or something. I believe so. So, so you can steal clothes from the officer. Well, that allows you to get into the pub, where you can get the cider, and, and then you've got to change back into the clothes of the merchant, and then you des- deliver the cider to the old man. And that allows you passage into the rich guy's house. Uh, and there's also a, an interesting and not a completely subtle commentary here, but you could miss it if if you weren't paying attention to that it is the wealthy, the well-off who sells out the rest of the town to the empire. And you know, his life really doesn't change. They're kind of being well-guarded and taken care of by the empire where everyone else has had all of their you know, freedoms taken away here the the rich guy got what he wanted out of it and and yeah so a subtle social commentary going on here so now that you've given the old man the cider you can talk to his grandson the grandson wants a password the password choices are rosebud courage and failure so rosebud obviously a a reference to what some people consider to be a good movie (laughs) it's a good movie it's a little overrated but you watch it through the right eye. Citizen Kane is pretty fascinating. But yeah, Rosebud is big, big part of that. So the password is courage. And, and if you have the password, you can take the secret passageway to the rich dude who's sold out South Figaro to the Empire. You can make your way to a hidden basement. Because you're a treasure hunter, you're going to, you're in a rich guy's house. <laughs> you figure you might have some cool stuff in the basement. Sure, sure. You got to go behind the bookcase to get down into the basement. In the basement, you find that one of the rooms has been has been converted into a uh, sort of a makeshift dungeon. And you can peek into the dungeon and you see a woman up against the wall, presumably chained against the wall, and she is getting the snot beat out of her. Yeah, it's pretty brutal, uh, especially when you look at a lot of the other stuff that's been censored out of the Nintendo-era Final Fantasy games and some of the sexual content that was censored out of this one. Uh, There's no blood or anything, but they're quite clearly just punching her in the gut and in the face and speaking down to her, and uh, it's, yeah... Product of genetic engineering, battle-hardened Magitech Knight, with a spirit as pure as snow. Yeah. Celeste. Some people say Celis. It's fine. Cher? I don't know. Again, the last names are all a little bit strange and, like, half-canon, but... <laughs> right, right. Well, I, a lot of these, you know, we talk about Final Fantasy being a blend of Western and Eastern... 
uh, a lot. And a lot of these last names strike me as European or vaguely European. Cher would be a, a French word. We, we were talking last time about how Cyan's last name is Garamond right. or Garamande, which sounds to me like a sort of an Italian last name, even though he's meant to be a samurai. So yeah, I kind of dig that we've got this this juxtaposition between expected words and names. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of cool. And once again, this is a character that we have seen before in uh, the opening scene and in some flashbacks uh, alongside the other top generals in the Empire. So if you've got a keen eye, you probably recognize that she is a general in the Empire. And... Uh, if not, I'm pretty sure the guards say it at one point. There's a little bit of exposition through dialogue here. The mighty General Celeste has fallen, something to that effect. So we know who she is a little bit, but probably weren't expecting to see her in this condition. Kelly says Garamond is French. Yeah. All right. Sure. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this scene and is so great, again, about the way this story is told and the choice to branch it off into three directions here is that in the middle of the beating that she is taking, we get, again, I think some good, some clever exposition through dialogue where she gives us the kind of the reasoning behind why this is happening. She is particularly protesting to the fact that they were going to, or already have, poisoned Doma Castle. And what's great about that is that if you've already played the Sabin scenario, you're intimately familiar with the horror that that caused. And if you haven't yet, then this works as a good piece of foreshadowing for something that you're going to see later. Just super cool moment that you can kind of only do in a video game style storytell. So since we're here, why don't we do a, go a little more in depth on Celeste? One of the things I think is interesting about Celeste is that her sprite art and her Amano art are significantly different. Uh, either way, she is a, a blonde haired Caucasian woman. She looks like she could be a, a, a very adroit warrior. Uh, she looks like she's someone who, who's adept at fencing. She's got a long, thin sword. Her sprite art has her in a sort of green leotard-looking thing with a, a long white cape, which I think uh, is, is not a bad look at all. But her Amano art has her in what I've always thought of as the Bruce Lee outfit. She's got the, the yellow, almost the yellow tracksuit from which movie was that? Enter the Dragon? Or Game of Death. It's one of those Game two. of Death. Okay. Yeah. Either way, uh, so she's got the sort of yellow, I don't know, general pantsuit, the, the, the yellow uniform. It's also referenced I think, in Kill Bill, The Bride Wears It. Oh, sure. She starts off with ice magic, similar to the way Terra starts off with fire magic, though she's not born to it naturally. We learn, uh, you know, through, the, through that little description of nothing else that the genetic engineering done on her gave her ice magic. And so I think that's an interesting juxtaposition because you would expect the the character with fire magic, Terra, to be outgoing and uh, perhaps brash and have a, have a bad temper, whereas the character with ice magic would be cold and standoffish and calm. I mean, that would, that would be playing into the tropes. But Terra does not feel any emotions at all right now. 
And even when she does eventually later, she's not exactly a fly-off-the-handle type of character. But neither really is Celeste. She is... I just think it's interesting that they don't play into those tropes with the fire character and the ice character. Yeah, I I agree. And I I think that kind of gets to the central theme of Celeste as a character. She's one of the more interesting, I think, a lot of people, among a lot of people's favorites, if you're going to have favorite type character. She's a name that comes up a lot in the franchise. And I think it's because she's so conflicted in in so many ways this is about battling her upbringing some of which we learn later about sid you know wasn't so bad just because she was brought up in the empire but much of it was we know she's been genetically engineered we know that she's been a warrior Uh, she's been basically only ever allowed to be a warrior and so a lot of her journey is about discovering the if I may, and it's a weird thing for me to say, but the her feminine side a little bit, um, getting to, to be something other than just a military person. And I think we should do a spoiler now for her, actually, because I, I think it's going to help us understand Celeste as a character moving forward um, about the human heart and conflict with itself, that, that old line about great storytelling is that she is a plant. I don't know how much of this scene is planted. One of the things that's great about storytelling like this is that when you find out later that Celeste was supposed to betray the Returners, that the Empire sent her to join our group, and she is supposed to pick a very specific moment in time to betray them. And then we'll talk about what happens when we get there. But I think it helps us understand all of the internal struggles she is going through throughout this entire series and why her arc leads her to some of the darkest moments that any character in the franchise will face and 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 seeing her being introduced in this way it it's it's heartbreaking when you take a step back and you look at everything that she's about to go through um, but yeah, well, one of the all-time greats, I think. It's also worth noting that she has an ability that I'm sure must show up again in Final Fantasy. Uh, but she's got her runic sword, which allows her to, when you use it, she absorbs whatever next spell is cast, even if it's one of yours, which is extraordinarily useful in certain circumstances. And I really only use it, like I use it in the Fanatics Tower in the World of Ruin a lot, because there's... That's all you you can, right? Like you, you, yeah, it's all about using magic, right? So being able to use runic, I'm pretty sure I can use runic. Man, hope I didn't mess that one up. Either um, way, it's an interesting ability, and and it's very useful in certain circumstances. And then, as we've talked about too, with the way Final Fantasy VI is so brilliant with combining tones. So right after this dark, brutal scene where these men are beating up a woman, though she can clearly handle herself as a warrior. Still, it's tough She's to chained watch. to the wall, though. Yeah, right. Um, Locke you know, sneaks into the room, and there is potential for oh, yeah. <laughs> a brilliant comedic moment here. There's a decent one if you're still wearing merchant attire, 
she will say something to the effect of what do you hope to sell down here in the dungeons, you know? And, and so that's kind of like a little bit funny that she's, she's more occupied with this odd person's appearance than she is with what's going on with her. But if, and you actually have to go out of your way to do this, to get back into a soldier's uniform before you go down there. But if you do that, she will quote star Wars directly not directly, because she doesn't say stormtrooper. She says, aren't you a little short for an Imperial soldier? Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff there. You get to, anytime you get to quote Princess Leia again, you're going to become a fan favorite character, I think. So you can remove her chains and assure her that she is welcome to come with you. You're not going to leave her behind. Uh, and then before you leave the cell, you should really search the guard. Because the guard has a clock key in his pocket, and you are given two options. One, take it. And two, stealing is wrong. <laughs> That's great. After all the stuff you've done in this little scenario, too. Um, so you take the clock key. Uh, you make your way through the rich man's basement. You can loot the basement if you haven't already. You use the clock key on the clock that's not moving to reveal a secret passage, and you sneak out of South Figaro. And there's one moment, too, on their way out where Celeste either preys upon uh, some knowledge. I don't know how much they know about Locke or if it just happened to work out this way, but uh, allows him to do his typical, don't worry, I'll protect you thing. And, you know, that's that's kind of her way in at first, which is fascinating when you consider where the two of them will end up. So you do have to make your way across the world map, which means you, go, you need to go through the Figaro tunnel. At the end of the tunnel, you will run into a Magitech robot armor thingy. Uh, it's basically a big drill. And this is where you learn to use Celeste's runic blade. Uh, she will tell you, you know, it's going to cast spells, so have me uh, absorb the spells while you steal and then defeat the boss. If you don't use her runic... If you don't use her ability to absorb spells, this is a much more difficult fight. Once through the Figaro Caves, uh, you make your way to Narsh, and Locke's chapter is finished. So now that we have completed Sabin's chapter and Locke's chapter, there is only Tara's chapter left. And it is the shortest. There's not a lot to say here. Though I would like to take a moment to, to do a bit of an aside. I've been, uh, I recently played the Ignis and Gladio chapters of Final Fantasy XV. And I got to say, if Mog had showed up uh, somewhere in Final Fantasy XV and said, would you like to follow Gladio or would you like to follow Ignis? I would have been perfectly okay with that. Right. How cool. Yeah. <laughs> In the way we're doing things, we've only got one more left to do. Uh, we follow Terra, Edgar, and Bannon. 
They ride their raft to the end of the river. Uh, you go up to Narsh. This is where it's important that you paid attention to Locke because you can't just go in the front gates. You need to remember where that secret, uh, the secret tunnel is. Secret tunnel. Secret tunnel. You still haven't seen Avatar The Last Airbender, so you don't know that song. No, I don't know. But oh, man. Sounds... Through the mountain. <laughs> secret, 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 secret tunnel. <laughs> you will like that episode, man. you got to watch that I'm show. I'm sure I will. Yeah. All right. So this is, uh, like I said, it's the shortest chapter. All you really do is you go through the caves in Narsh. There is one point where there's a security system that's been turned on. you got to follow the light through that maze where you fought alongside Moogles at one point. Yeah, it's a fun little bit. If you don't, you, you end up having a fight and you have to start all over. Eventually, though, you, you make your way through the tunnels and you cross that big bridge and you go to Arvis's house. Uh, and I think this is the last time we see Arvis or the last time Arvis has any storyline importance. Yeah. So we were talking earlier. We, we always talk at the end about what the flaws might be of any one particular game. If I were to be nitpicky, I would say that it's that some of these characters just sort of disappear at some point, like Arvis and Bannon. Like, they're really important here in this first act. And then, I mean, maybe they die when the world is broken here in a while, or, you know, maybe they just sort of fade into obscurity. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's a plot hole or anything. It's just a thing that disappears. A loose end. Right, and people often get plot holes and and loose ends mixed up, and yeah, there's not necessarily anything wrong with it, but you're right, I think it would be more effective, more of a a payoff, and probably the way I would do it is show them specifically dying when Kefka destroys the world, make that moment a bit more impactful because, you know, none of our, not, not to do too much spoilers, but none of our main heroes die in that event. And there's a, there's a good reason why that's the case. They weren't down on the planet when it was being destroyed. But, right. you know, I, I think it would be very effective if we saw some of these NPCs. We talked in the very first game, Matoya, going back to the very first NPC, really, that you, you want to care about these people. They're the reason why you're trying to stop the world from being destroyed and to make that moment more tragic, that, that failure more palpable. There are a lot of people we've met throughout the game who it would be heartbreaking. And maybe because again, it was on Nintendo and they were still a little bit, these have got to be for kids. Like how much do you want to break people's hearts with back to back, you know, Bannon and Arvis. And I'm sure there could be a few other people that we've met throughout it'd be brutal but it'd be really effective so you get everybody together and uh with Locke's information that the empire is about to storm narsh they decide they need to protect the the esper the frozen esper the frozen esper has been taken out of the mine and put up into the mountains so having moved the Esper up into the mountains as sort of a more defensive move, they feel like they can defend it from there. Our heroes are starting to gather and discuss strategy as the parties are, are sort of walking in one by one. And uh, Sabin arrives and has to introduce everybody to his new companions in Cyan and, and Gao. Cyan obviously wants to join the fight against the Empire. They've murdered his people, his family, 
all of that. Uh, you know, Gao is is along for the ride. Uh, <laughs> like well, he wants stuff. to help his new his his new dads. That's that's right. <laughs> that's <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, then the last person to arrive is Locke with Celeste, as you mentioned, with the information that this is going to happen. They do question. How do you know for sure? Because not everybody here knows Locke, and he doesn't look like the most trustworthy guy. He looks like a guy who <laughs> steals stuff from rich people's basements. He looks uh, like Han Solo. <laughs> right. Don't trust that dude. And so one of the things he says is, well, this here is Celeste. She was an Imperial general. And, of course, Cyan wigs yeah. out at this information. Not especially thrilled. In fact, he throws Gao, his new son, aside. says, excuse me, Sir Gao. And gets right up in Celeste's face. He is ready to throw down, to have at you. And in this moment, Tara speaks up and says, I too am a former Imperial. Yeah. And Cyan is absolutely beside himself. But Edgar, showing a bit of great leadership speaks up and there's this great line man and it's just i wish everybody again hat tip to ted woolsey but i'm sure the sentiment has always been the same and this is why these games are so amazing edgar says something to the effect of i don't have the line right in front of me but the only victims of the empire aren't just people outside of the empire they victimize their own as much as anybody and, you know, we have to, and they sort of come to this realization that they're going to need everybody that they can. Um, Cyan still vows that he does not trust Celeste in particular. Right. So maybe he's got a good nose about that. Maybe his instincts were correct there. And it's a, a more interesting interaction in hindsight when you do know the truth about Celeste because I think as the player you're saying we just saw her get beat up and Locke's kind of fallen in love with her and so come on Cyan just she's on our side now but you know he's the one holdout and for good reason so our heroes go up into the mountains uh, to stand physically against the empire there there are some conversations on the way up Cyan reiterates that he still doesn't trust Celeste and Celeste is like, you know, I get it, but we got a thing to do. Uh, Celeste and Tara have a conversation. Yeah. They, their conversation, like I feel like Celeste grew up with Leo and possibly Kefka and, you know, had Sid as this father figure, but Tara seems to have been kept off to the side because she, she talks like she knows who Tara is, but not like she knows Tara. Right. And so Tara is is asking about, you know, how how do you know how what what you feel? Like you went through some of the same stuff I did. How do you know, you know, who you are and, and what it means to feel and what love is? And Celeste is just like, oh, I'm sorry, what? Right. Like, why would I think about those things? Right. Or or why wouldn't you know? Or why would you care about love when, you know, I also saw you burn 50 people to death? It's like like her, right. Celeste's thought process, you know, what she's thinking is not made explicit in this situation. But she does seem taken aback by everything right. Tara has said here. Right. And it's a very brief interaction. And it's one I would be 
tempted to draw out a little bit again in a modern iteration. I wanted to see them have a little bit longer of a dialogue there because it is so interesting. And we get some fun interactions between some of the others. Edgar warns Celeste not to fall in love with Locke, which is hilarious because we've already seen Locke warn Tara not to fall in love with Edgar. But Celeste, again, responds with this kind of, what is it with you people in love? Like, I'm a general (laughs) in the army. We're preparing for a gigantic battle. I don't have time to look at Locke. Like, I'm glad he broke me out of jail, but she just straight up says, you know, and she says different iterations of one of her most famous lines ever, which comes much later about, you know, I'm not a floozy, essentially, is what she's saying here. And she has to reiterate this a couple of times to these boys. So our heroes get up into the mountains and we get one of these fights where you get to break your team uh, into two or three. It's three different units. Uh, so yeah, it's it's like the Moogle fight we had at the very beginning of the game in the caves of Narsh. But this is up in the mountains with Kafka leading uh, a large force of soldiers. And in this case, I suppose Terra and Edgar really leading the resistance force here, the returners. And yeah, it's super cool. One of the big criticisms we both had of Final Fantasy IV was that a lot of times the story would have to go out of its way to break up the characters, and you never really had the entire team all at once doing a big thing. Well, here we have our entire team all at once doing a big thing, and it's pretty cool. You can make all different kinds of combinations of who you think work well as teams or keep them together for storyline reasons, if you like. Like, have Sabin go with Gao because, and Cyan because, you know, they all met each other first. Whatever you want to do or, or think of it in terms of classes, it's so much fun. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it makes it feel pretty epic because it's supposed to be. So you fight off the various Imperial soldiers and you get to Kefka uh, the fight with Kefka, I remember being not too terribly difficult, except that he does have poison, which is a pain. Right. This is also the first time we see him with a little bit of different character art. If you'll recall, when we're trying to run sure. him down at the camp outside Doma, he just looked like his normal little sprite in battle. But here he looks more like a, a monster, more right. menacing, and it's a good artistic indication that he's becoming far more of a threat than maybe he seemed at first. Right, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, so, so you're right, he gets his monster, his Amano art here, which is how the monsters are generally presented in Final Fantasy. So yeah, he starts as a sprite, then he gets his monster art, and then he just grows and grows and grows in in importance, but also physically <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then in classic fashion at the end of the fight you don't actually really defeat kafka here you just scare him off and it gives you the same sound effect for when you run away from a battle he runs away and that's how the fight ends because of course kafka would run away once you have defeated kafka well here we are we've we've got the esper we've got the girl who can talk to espers let's talk to the esper let's you know we're here to protect you and we want you on our side in this political conflict i guess 
Of course, that's not what Tara's thinking. Tara's just thinking, you know, who am I and, and what does this mean? So she approaches the Esper. She asks literally that. She says, who am I? And they start to have that reaction like they did at the beginning of the game. Right, right. And uh, there's also this great part. they Because you enter the, the battle scene and from off camera, I guess. From, uh, right, right. Other characters are just yelling things at her, like, Tara, get away from the Esper. You know, what's happening? What's going on? And she has just shut them all out, and it's just the right. two of them. It sort of implies that they can't get near her, which so maybe there's magic involved, right, keeping them out. But the magic does not uh, blink them from existence like it did Biggs and Wedge at the beginning. So is that a function of Vara Gomanda or Tritoch? sensing they are allies or is that a function of Terra knowing they are allies yeah i'm not sure or it could be a function of them being warriors of light though not explicitly maybe there's a, a bit of a chosen one or they just have a higher constitution than biggs sure. and wedge uh but uh, i think my favorite interpretation would probably be that in that moment Terra is protecting them from further damage because there are these sort of explosions of energy and people are getting knocked away and held down and some of them are by the end of this interaction hanging on to a cliffside but uh i choose to believe that it is terra that is keeping them all alive in this moment and in this moment her connection to the esper awakens a part of her she didn't know she had and her esper side awakes and her form flickers and wavers uh, and suddenly she, while she's still humanoid, she no longer appears to be human. creature of light and magic and power and she's this sort of uh, purple pink figure and and her hair goes all wild and she is suddenly uh, you know terrified of, of her own power she doesn't know who she is her body has changed dramatically and she she kind of loses it and she she flies off she lets out this scream yeah she she bursts into the air and she's gone and she kind of, you see her fade like as a blink of light in the distance. She's just this light in the night sky as she fades away. And you are left there. At least I am left there. Mouth agape. <laughs> yeah. Like we talked about paradigm shifts in the first game when you get to go from being a thief, to, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, from being a, a fighter to being a knight. And it's like, this is a paradigm shift right here. So we can see that she went south. And we decide what we need to do is to help our friend. We need to go find Terra. It's not just that she is the key to winning this war. It's that she's one of our allies. So uh, you can only take four people, which means you got to leave a couple people behind. Which, again, is kind of irritating, but there you go. They do give, I think, a couple little storyline reasons for it. Like, someone's still got to stay here. Protect sure. the Esper and Narsh and 
Right. Now we've got to make sure that Bannon is safe. I do think they mentioned Bannon like one last time there and say something about protecting him. But yeah, you've got to send a party in search of Terra to be sure. So we go south in in pursuit of our friend Terra. And there are a couple places you can stop and do things before you get to one of the most awesome cities in any Final Fantasy game ever. And before we move on, there, there's a nice little bit of circular storytelling here, some symmetry, because at the beginning of the game, after the battle down in the caves, when uh, Terra has lost consciousness, she wakes up in Arvis's house. And then in this scene, Locke wakes up in Arvis's house uh, before the group decides to go down and look for Terra. And then just like at the beginning of the game that began in Narsh and, and with someone getting out of bed after this crazy thing happened, you got to head to Figaro Castle. So there's this kind of revisiting the beginning of the story here. Nice. So you head south from Narsh and you head to Figaro Castle. You have to go to Figaro Castle because Figaro Castle can travel around the desert. And you have to do that to get past... I can't remember if you're going underneath mountains or you're going underneath a, a sea or something. But either way, you have to go to Figaro Castle. And while you don't have to take both Edgar and Sabin, you really should. Because if you do, you get a little bit more storyline. Only, though, yeah, only if you have both guys in your party and if you decide to take a rest while you're there. And there are a lot of these little things throughout the game that you can miss if you don't have people in your party. And it gives reason to play through because different things will play out a little bit differently. But this is one you, you cannot miss. It's also worth noting that when you buy things at Figaro Castle, the merchants will say, I can't take money from the king. And Edgar's like, you have to provide for your families. You work for me, but you're not, you know, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to pay for the things. So, you know, I kind of, I gave Edgar a hard time for uh, making a pass at people who work for him. Even if that's not quite what he does, it sort of feels like that they're implying that's what he does. But here he shows that he's not the kind of guy to abuse his power. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. The important bit is when you sleep here, you will get uh, a flashback. So if you take Sabin uh, the first time, when you first go into the castle, he'll like run around and, and visit all his old places. Like, oh, I'm back home. I want to go see what's changed and what's the same. But when you spend the night... Well, Sabin kind of gets around and he begins to night wander and sort of, kind of all of the joy of returning home fades into remembering why and how he left and and why it's been so long since he's been home and we kind of pick up in a flashback that is a sequel to the one we saw last time we were at figaro castle where we see the next stage of you know last time we had seen them kind of having a little bit of an argument over the fact that their father was ill and and going to leave the kingdom to one of them And then we see in this flashback, they're approached by the high priestess, presumably the person who would crown a new king, who tells them that the father says he would entrust Figaro to both of them. Uh, but they 
both agree that they've seen kingdoms torn apart by squabbling brothers and, you know, all, all the kind of things that can come with that. And also neither one of them wants to be king. At least that's what they say out loud. Right. Well, I get the impression that that is true. Me too. Um, Sabin definitely doesn't want to be king. Edgar... Right. I think Edgar would prefer to be in his workshop all day uh, in the right. same way that, you know, Sabin would like to just be training with Master Duncan all day. So they, they have the, they, this conversation culminates at the top of one of the towers and Edgar says, okay, I know what to do. We will settle this with a coin toss. Yeah. And they don't show you the result necessarily. They they do this cool cinematic thing where he flicks the coin and it like goes up way farther than it really should, and we just sort right. of pan upward. But then I, if I recall correctly, we come out of this flashback, and the two brothers are awake at night and in the throne room. Uh, and obviously, what has happened is Edgar lost the coin toss, so Sabin got to run away and be a a martial artist monk in the hills to the south, while. Edgar had to stay and, and run a kingdom. And yeah. it's, it's this nice moment where it's just the two of them in the throne room. You know, do you have any regrets? You know, not really. We're doing, we're doing a good thing now. We, uh, we, we, all we can do is move forward. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a very touching scene and, and again, a very memorable one. So speaking of touching scenes... You get the head engineer of Figaro Castle to burrow the castle from this desert to the next desert, uh, which is near a town called Kolingen. Kolingen is just kind of this run-of-the-mill RPG town. However, uh, there is a house that Locke knows, and you really need to take Locke along on this part of the adventure. Yeah, again, it's like you kind of have to structure your party for this part of the story in a in a very specific way to get the most out of it. Because as you arrive in Collingen, there seem to be several people who immediately recognize Locke. Hey, you're back. Or, you know, these little clues that there's something more going on here. So before that moment, it is worth noting that there is a small house that has burned all to hell in this town. Turns out a flying creature landed here, accidentally set the house on fire, and then left, uh, headed south to Jidor. Uh, so you know where you're going next. I think there's a little girl here who says something like, the, the creature had gentle eyes, which is nice. The creature being Terra, in case I was being too coy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in the upper left of Kolingen uh, is Rachel's house, and here's where you'll learn a little bit about Locke's story. Okay, so upon entering the house, Locke speaks the sentence, I couldn't protect her. And then we get another flashback.
And it's another heartbreaking one that really helps to explain why Locke promises to protect every woman that he meets. We sort of get this sequence of events where we see him with a young woman he's clearly in love with. They're running off to do all of these treasure hunting adventures. Her father doesn't seem to be particularly fond of it because, well, stuff like that can be dangerous. And so, of course, on one fateful day, they were hunting for treasures. They were tomb raiding. And when you're doing that, booby traps can occur. One does, and a bridge starts to fall out from underneath them, and Rachel, as we learn, shoves her lover, Locke, aside to safety and plummets to an area below, smashing her head. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. um, Yeah, that's (laughs) tough. And... So this is another, by the way, another woman in the story who shows all kinds of agency by doing what she wanted to do, defying her father, her being the one to make the heroic sacrifice for the man. But when she does wake up, she she isn't killed, but uh, head damage, she has amnesia. So our second dose of amnesia in the story. Yep. Traumatic brain injury. Yeah, and... and uh, he keeps coming around trying to remind her that they're friends, that they're partners in adventuring, that they love each other. And eventually she says, every time you come here, my parents cry. Please don't yeah. come back. And, the, you know, the father gives him a little bit of that on the way out of town, too. You're no good for her. This is your fault, even. Um, yeah. And so... If we've been wondering this whole time why Locke seems to walk around with a bit of guilt mm-hmm. and something to prove, mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with the Forever Rachel story. So now I can't remember quite what happens next, but when we were when we arrive in Collagen, Rachel's not in her house. Right. Instead, she's in the basement of the house on the right being held in some kind of a suspended animation. And I, is that a result of her head injury or did something else happen? So, right, because the story wasn't tragic enough, she does eventually slip into a coma. And so even though Locke isn't allowed to see her anymore, he has been, as we learned in his character introduction, searching the world over for relics of the past. He has been searching for remnants of the phoenix, something he has heard can bring people back from the the brink of death, essentially, so that maybe one day, still, he might be able to reunite with his love, Rachel. So, has everyone got their Kleenex out? Are we good? Ah. <laughs> uh... It is also mentioned in Collagen that there's somebody to the north who dreams of one day owning a Colosseum. That's a heck of a dream. I wonder if it will ever happen. <laughs> you know. And you can go visit his house. He's just got a little house up there, and I think there might be like some items up in his house. So we know Terra flew south to Jador. So you walk south to Jador. Jador is an interesting town. Speaking of class separations, we saw this a little bit in South Figaro. You see it a lot here. 
there are a couple, you know, you got your chocobo stables and your armory and your inn and your iron shop and your weapon shop, but you've also got an auction house. And a lot of nice houses. It's sort of the, the aristocratic town of well-to-do people. Right. It, it is definitely the rich town, and the richest dude lives at the very top of the town. So there's some commentary for you. Um, but the auction house is interesting. You can you can buy certain items. I don't think anything here is especially worth purchasing at the moment, though there will be in the second half of the game uh, some items that you really want that you can only get at the auction house. You can go all the way north to, uh, to Alger's house. He's the richest man apparently in the world. He does not have a giant tower with his name on it, but he does have a really <laughs> big house. It, it's especially noteworthy that in this house he's got like his own art gallery. That will become storyline yeah. important later. So in Jidora, you, you also hear about a few other things. There's an opera house way to the south. Uh, the opera house is not in any particular town, but basically get, like gets its own spot on the world map, which sort of suggests it's its own self-contained village, perhaps, with the opera house at the center, uh, which I think is kind of yeah. neat. You, you hear about this flying creature, burning woman, who flew north to Zozo. Zozo you find is, uh, or, or if you hear about, is this worn-down, run-down place where everybody lies all the time. It's a, it's a hive of scum and villainy. It's a, it's a den of thieves. It's, it's a pretty nasty place. And it's also the coolest place. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's great because it's got this quirk and they warn you about it because somebody in Jador will tell you everybody in Zozo is a liar. And then when you arrive in Zozo, the very first person you can talk to will say, great people here, you can trust everything they say. <laughs> and it's. Yeah, it's always raining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always raining. It's got that cool music that only is here in this town. Yeah. And you can get into random fights here. Like, people will try to mug you all the time. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, because normally in any other Final Fantasy game, if you're in town, you're safe from being attacked. But not in Zozo. <laughs> so... One of the big puzzles in Zozo is figuring out what time it is. Everyone will give you the wrong time. And the reason you want that is because there is a clock that if you set it to like, if you set it to 6, 10, and 50 seconds, you will open a secret passage that will give you the chainsaw, which is a powerful tool for Edgar. Uh, that's really cool. I almost always use the chainsaw or the auto crossbow. Yeah, those are the best ones. <laughs> Being able to poison them with the one thing is also pretty good, with the bioblast. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah. Uh, you, you climb the tower, the tallest tower in, uh, in Zozo. There's somebody who says, don't jump between the building, it's dangerous. So that means you have to jump between buildings in order to get up the tower. And eventually there's this big sort of monk martial artist dude called the Dadaluma, who you have to fight. You beat him up and you get into this room. And this is the nicest room in all of Zozo. Uh, at the top of a metal tower where it rains all the time, is perhaps an appropriate place to find a god of thunder. In the room is someone who actually looks quite human, but odd, different, off, like a, like a very, very old man. 
standing there who immediately begins to interrogate you. Who are you? Uh, is this girl your friend? And as you begin to explain, yes, this is our friend, Tara starts kind of flying around the room and, and writhing in pain and clearly doesn't quite know what's going on or where she is. And uh, it's just this kind of horrible scene and you're eventually able to subdue her a little bit, get her back into bed. And then of course the party wants to know, all right, old man, uh, who are you? And he comes right in, out and says, I am Ramu, the Esper. And that gets everyone's attention. Uh, we've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. Ramu is the summoned monster who tends to be closest to humanity. In Final Fantasy IX, rather than uh, like having to defeat him, you have to play this little quest game with him. I, I have always found that very interesting. In, in World of Final Fantasy, he is the most tempered of, of the three most common summons. So Ifrit and Shiva are ready to kill these children in World of Final Fantasy. And, and Rami's like, now, now, <laughs> let's, not, right. let's not be hasty. So I like that here in Final Fantasy VI, he's the one who gets the Bugenhagen moment, right? He's the one who explains this is what it was like before humans and espers lived together. And then humans wanted Esper's power. And then there was the War of the Magi. And then we built a door. You know, we built our own realm and we built a door. Uh, and, and he does the whole exposition moment. And it's pretty great, too, because it's sort of the conclusion of the opening act of the game and where the larger, more mystical part of the story starts to take hold. So far, it's really been about these people and this war and these proxy battles and these encounters. Uh, but the looming question about the nature of magic and why the story opened telling us about the War of the Magi and what is really going on here, this is where all of that begins to open up. And we understand, as Ramu tells us, that while there has been this separation for a very long time because of the war, that uh, espers have been in one realm and humans in the other, they happen to, humans that is, stumble upon it about 20 years ago, he tells us. And in so doing, and he doesn't say directly, it's again kind of well implied through some good writing that these people who stumbled upon it were the Empire or would at least become the Empire because... They begin to, once they realize espers are still out there and that they can drain their power for magical purposes to steal their power, they go on a hunt for espers. And many of them have begun to disguise themselves as humans, as Ramu is doing here. And so there's this kind of secret war already going on that we didn't realize because most of our heroes, most people in the world believe that all the espers are gone. But the Empire, it turns out, for at least the last 20 years has been hunting them down, stealing them away to a Magitech research facility. It's how they've been able to create their Magitech weaponry that we saw at the very beginning of the game. And they're doing this sort of secret holocaust, really. Ramu has a line here where he says, you have nothing to fear from us. And I like that because he's right. The the espers as a whole are not aggressive. They they just want to live their lives as people often do. The humans in this game 
are the monsters, right? Like in Final Fantasy II, we're we're fighting off the monsters summoned from hell. Uh, in in Final Fantasy One, we're we're fighting off the monsters released from the sort of time warp and and chaos, sending the fiends forward in time. Like we're usually fighting monsters, but in this game, the humans are the are the real threat. The you know a couple in particular, Emperor Gestal is the real threat. Ramu explains that this Magitek research facility, he escaped. You know, he and some of the others fled. He calls himself a coward. And then he explains that the Empire's method of draining a live Esper of its power is actually not the most efficient way to learn magic. Instead, what you got to do is you have to take the crystallized essence of an Esper who has already died and allow them to teach you magic through experience. And then he presents. Yeah. Uh, then he presents our light warriors with their first four crystals. Yeah, and they are, he says, comrades who fell in battle as they were escaping. So you know, it's a pretty somber moment for him, and, and a pretty sobering moment for our heroes. Who at the beginning of the game were absolutely flabbergasted by the sight of magic, and now here's an esper telling them, "You need to take the powers." of my fallen comrades and take that power and help my comrades who are still alive. It's also the only way you can help your friend. He says, probably someone there, one of the espers there can help Tara come to grips with what she is. He's very cryptic about what she is. I think uh, somebody says directly to her, uh, depending on who's in your party, is she an esper? And Ramu says, no, she's something quite different kind of leaves it at that, but suggests that one of the other espers should be able to help her accept what it is that she is. So our heroes, in order to help their friend and to help the espers who are being tortured in the Magitek facility decide what they need to do is they need to get an airship and fly to Vector and take this fight to the Empire. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. While the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org, if you want to download it on your regular podcast services, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. You can also still stream on Patreon at no cost. Join us next time when we meet the wandering gambler and get all dressed up for the opera. <laughs>